Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. Hello again and welcome to the Explaining History podcast. Now we've got something really special for you uh, this week. It's uh, an immense pleasure to have on the podcast David Barrett, um, a US historian who has written uh, a new book on the subject of the dropping of the atomic bomb on Hiroshima, uh, 140 Days to Hiroshima, the story of Japan's last chance to avert Armageddon. Um, it's out now in the US and uh, the History Press will be publishing it in uh, Britain um, in uh, later in 2020. Um, so uh, we, without further ado, we're going to go over to David now and talk um, about um, the uh, secret uh, plans by uh, the US administration for the uh, atomic bomb and the various calculations and discussions that were had uh, in the run-up to the dropping of the bomb and the various different historiographical positions that have been taken uh, on this subject. Obviously a matter of intense controversy uh, and debate. And this is the first of two podcasts that we're going to do the second of which will uh, be looked at from the uh, Japanese perspective in the uh, countdown to the Japanese surrender. Okay, without further ado, here we are in conversation with David Barrett. Okay, so I'd like to um, welcome David Barrett to the uh, the podcast today. Um, and firstly, before we do anything else, I think it's important to hear a little bit um, about uh, about the book and about how it's developed. And perhaps, David, you would be able to uh, tell us a little bit about that. Okay. Well, the name of the book is 140 Days to Hiroshima, the Japan's Last Chance to Avert Armageddon. Uh, actually, the story idea comes from almost 20 years ago when I went back to school to get my master's degree in history. And the first historiographic essay that I wrote was about the decision to drop the atomic bombs on Japan. Um, over the next 
almost 20 years then, uh, continued to do some research on it, got more and more interested in the topic and discovered more and more information about it. And uh, then about uh, a little over three years ago, I guess it was, decided that I wanted to write it as a book. Had to f- I found out that in order to get a, uh, a book published like that, you needed to get an agent. So that was the first order of business. Mm-hmm. I had written a, uh, a query letter and a uh, book proposal is what it was referred to, which included a sample chapter of the book. Managed to uh, get a, uh, an agent by a year ago last spring and finished up negotiating a deal with Diversion Books, which is the publisher that I, I have in New York, and began writing the book in earnest, shall we say, uh, the beginning of July. They gave me a, a year to write the book. I had written prior to that the entire story as a motion picture, a feature motion picture screenplay. Wow. And so, and when I did that, I endnoted the entire uh, book or the entire screenplay so that I knew what all my references were. Mm-hmm. So I used that kind of as my starting point, my, if you will, a, a very detailed outline, I guess you'd call it, of what the uh, book would ultimately become because a uh, screenplay is a very different uh, animal in the sense of the way it is formatted. Anyway, uh, finished it up a year ago, or I mean, uh, literally June 30th of 2019 and uh, my editor took it for about a month and then we began a series of about three rounds of edits and uh, that culminated last fall and the book officially became available April 7th of this year so just a little over a week ago. Excellent, excellent. Um, so, so this topic, um, the decision making around the dropping of the atomic bomb, particularly, which is what we're focusing on, on, on today, this is an area of uh, and has been since the end of the Second World War, an area of, of fierce controversy. Um, in um, there have been various um, sort of eras of uh, different schools of thought on the subject. Some which present Truman as a, as a more um, as a more calculating figure, some that present Truman as somebody with a series of impossible choices. Some schools of history present Truman as um, less um, motivated by anything to do with Japan and more sending a message to Stalin. There are uh, some uh, approaches from um, uh, what, that I could mention, from uh, particularly from uh, two, two very eminent British historians on uh, the war in Southeast Asia, um, uh, Tim Harper and Christopher Bailey, who I, I cite a lot on the podcast, that say that um, part of the reason for ending the war quickly um, was that uh, the, uh, the the British were hoping to re-establish themselves in Southeast Asia. Um, and were hoping to um, really take back the majority of the um, Southeast Asian Empire that they had lost. And this was a a very good way to spike Britain's guns, because much as Britain and America allied with themselves during the war, they were, particularly in Southeast Asia, quite often quite uneasy bedfellows um, with uh, conflicting conflicting, uh, demands. So there's different schools of thought that exist. Where do you situate yourself and your your argument amongst all those different ideas? Ideas. Well, what I attempt, what I do more than anything else to, I think, establish what I believe is is really what happened is I focus on the leadership in both Japan and in Washington because those are the guys who were confronted with the decisions, the issues, the situations that were occurring at that point in the war, 
and ultimately had to make the decisions. Okay. And the good news is that we have an, a tremendous amount of information about exactly what those guys were looking at and the decisions that they made. Sure. And as far as I'm concerned, to a very large degree, a lot of the rest of the stuff is irrelevant because when you listen to what those guys say and you look at the decisions that they made, then why do you really need to have this, this controversy? Because, frankly, you've got the people who are telling you, this is what I dealt with, these are sure. decisions I made. Sure. Um, and these are facts. I mean, this isn't stuff that I'm making up. I, I hate yeah. to say it, but I think an awful lot of the controversy is opinion. Yeah. Uh, there's a difference between opinion and facts. Sure. And the good news is that we have a lot of facts, including from Japanese uh, who interviewed uh, many of the men who were directly involved with this in the immediate aftermath of the war. Sure. So we'll get into in the second podcast a lot of that, what was going on in those final few days. But today we can tell we're going to spend our time obviously talking about the invasion, the casualty estimates, which there's a lot of controversy about as well, which frankly there's no reason for the controversy because the information exists. Yeah. So let's talk about that now then. So the casualty estimates, these were the things that really informed Truman's decision-making. Um Tell us about that. Tell us about the, the, okay, the well, statistics. Let me give you just a little bit of background before we get to the casualty estimates and the decision by the Joint, the American Joint Chiefs of Staff to go ahead and opt for the invasion uh, option. First thing to remember here is that we're that the Americans, mostly the Americans, really at that point in time, are really closing in on Japan. We've invaded the Philippines the end of November. Uh, by the beginning of March, the battle from Manila is raging. A uh, hundred thousand civilians are killed in an orgy by of killing by by Japanese soldiers. becomes one of the most destroyed cities in the world. Iwo Jima uh, begins the middle of February. takes thirty six days to take an eleven square mile uh, volcanic speck in the middle of the ocean, around six hundred plus miles away from Japan. 27 or 26,000 American casualties, 7,000 killed in action to do just that tiny little island. Mm. Then we're on to Okinawa just a few days later, the beginning of April. The battle takes 82 days to culminate, creates almost 80,000 plus casualties for the Americans, about 13,000 killed. 5,000 of those are killed sailors on uh, from kamikaze attacks. Almost 2,000 uh, kamikaze sorties against predominantly an American and somewhat British fleet that are supporting the invasion off of Okinawa. And then at the end of May, oh, and by the way, I mean, just to get a couple more decision points, if you've recently seen by some chance the movie Hacksaw Ridge, mm -hmm. that's the end of April, beginning of May, a horrific battle between the Japanese and the Americans to take that small ridge. Sugarloaf Hill, if you've ever heard of it, which is mm -hmm. only like 50 yards wide and about 300 mile, or 300 yards long, takes seven days and 13 efforts by the uh, American Marines to take that tiny little speck. Mm. is part of the the, um, the the major defensive line in Japan in uh, on Okinawa, and perhaps as much as a third of the uh, civilian population of the Japanese, because the Japanese island is Okinawan, died during that particular battle. Mm. So that's kind of the prelude for then the uh, invasion planning by the, uh, or I should say, the decision by the Joint Chiefs of Staff at the end of May 1945. 
during that discussion between uh, the Joint Chiefs of Staff and some of the other members of their staffs, obviously, um, they decide that they're going to invade rather than continuing the just the blockade and bombardment that is already taking place. Mm-hmm. But at that point in time, the United States had full control of the air. The Japanese Navy was at the bottom of the ocean. Mm-hmm. The Japanese had virtually no ability to uh, conduct offensive operations at that point in time. Uh, the uh, uh, Japanese homeland was beginning to be strangled to death at that point mm-hmm. in time. Strategic bombing campaign, which had begun in November of '44, uh, was incinerating Japanese cities. Yeah. In March, on March 9th and 10th, 1945, the first of these really incendiary attacks began uh, against Tokyo, burning out 16 square miles of the city in one night, killing over 80,000 people, destroying over a quarter of a million homes. Well, there's an interesting point to be made about that, isn't there? Uh, I mean, if we're t- uh, interestingly, we're talking about uh, films and documentaries. The um, Errol Morris uh, documentary about uh, McNamara, when he, he and Curtis LeMay planned the industrial uh, bombing of um, Japan... The firebombing of um, Japanese cities, uh, Tokyo, Yokohama, places like this, was on a greater magnitude in nearly every instance than the destruction of the atomic bomb. So the, the, the degree of destruction that the two atomic bombs wrought on Japan, Japan had already experienced sort of similar uh, bombardment to that um, in, in the months beforehand. Correct. And, and an interesting point about that is... It had no effect whatsoever on Japanese leadership, mm-hmm. who remained in Tokyo. And you're correct, actually. The bombing that night, the one I was just referring to, March 9th and 10th, was actually the most destructive attack in terms of human life, over 80,000 people, yeah, in the entire war, in mm-hmm. all theaters, including, obviously, uh, Dresden is an example in uh, Europe. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, it had no effect on the Japanese leadership, who remained in Tokyo. In fact, about eight or nine days after that particular uh, bombing, uh, Hirohito remained, obviously, in Tokyo as well. He walked through the remains of Japan or of Tokyo through that part of the city. Uh, basically, you know, stopped a few times to talk to a few people, but it was a relatively short visit. Yeah. But it was clear it was clear to, obviously, them, and as you pointed out, this was actually just the beginning of those raids. Now, none were as destructive as this particular attack, but this was just beginning. Within just a handful of days, LeMay attacked several other cities mm-hmm. and continued to do so, right, do so right up until the end of the war. In fact, you really make a legitimate argument that there was only a qualitative difference between the destruction wrought by these kinds of attacks and ultimately the atomic bombs, mm. that being radiation, yeah. which frankly wasn't well understood either. No, There's too much discussion sometimes about, well, wow, the, the Americans knew exactly how devastating the radiation effects with this would be. Well into the 50s mm-hmm. in the United States, we were testing and then sending American troops and mm-hmm. Marines down to basically ground zero mm-hmm. within minutes after these kinds of attacks. In fact, they became known as atomic veterans and the United States ended up paying millions and millions of dollars to these guys mm-hmm. because of that. So the notion that the United States fully understood the effects of radiation at the time is a complete fallacy. I would, I would agree. And you, you, would, you find uh, an equivalent in every um, United Nations Security Council power, the, the French, the British, the Chinese and the Soviets, that have atomic weapons, 
essentially made similar uh, similar errors or um, sins of omission um, throughout the 1950s and 1960s as they acquired nuclear weapons. So, yes, it's 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 quite plausible that in 1945 radiation wasn't really being considered particularly at all. Correct. So going back to the end of May in this Joint Chiefs of Staff meeting, so the outcome of this was that the Joint Chiefs decided unanimously, albeit the Navy was reluctant, shall we say, <laughs> but they did go along nevertheless, to, and they decided to offer the invasion plan. They were going to continue doing the blockade and bombardment, so what LeMay was doing, what the Navy was doing, by the way, aircraft carriers, battleships, cruisers were running right along the coast of Japan, and they were carrying tactical raids in terms of aircraft and literally doing shore bombardment of Japanese cities as well. That's how, how tight the stranglehold was. They had mined the ports as well. They had submarine activity destroying any merchant shipping that was left over. In any event, they decided they would just continue that. And the main reason for doing it, meaning opting for the invasion option, was that they believed that it would get an unconditional surrender out of the Japanese sooner. Mm -hmm. The big unknown or question mark associated with doing a uh, blockade environment was it was completely unknown in terms of how long it would take to get the Japanese to capitulate under those circumstances. Mm -hmm. And when you could see at that point in time, because this has been going on, meaning the strategic bombing, right, the blockade since the beginning of March, mm -hmm. right? Now we're at the end of the May, end of May. At this point in time, it's not had any effect in terms of getting the Japanese to surrender. Yeah. So it's a complete unknown if you stay with blockade and bombardment. What you do know is that Japanese would have died from the bombing. They would have died from starvation because they were already had a poor rice crop. We were about to start attacking their bridges, the rail structure, those kinds of things. Same thing, the kinds of things that we did against Germany to basically impede any movement within the country, including the movement of rice from places of production to places where it was consumed. Yeah. And on top of that, you have a poor rice crop. Dying of exposure because we've dehoused millions and millions of Japanese by that point in time, and disease because you've destroyed all kinds of infrastructure. Mm -hmm. And in fact, had it not been for the atomic bombs, millions of Japanese were ready to start starving to death already. Mm -hmm. Okay, so they approved the uh, the uh, decision to go ahead and invade uh, Japan. It's a two phase. It's called downfall. There are two elements to downfall. The first is called Olympic. It would have taken the lower one-third of uh, Kyushu, Kyushu being the southernmost uh, uh, Japanese of the main uh, Japanese island in the main uh, home islands. Uh, it would have formed an, a, uh, a lodgment point for the – that would have uh, started, uh, uh, I'm sorry, November 1st, 1945. And to put that in perspective, by the way uh, – uh, Olympic, just the first phase, would have involved just under three-quarters of a million Americans invading. Uh, British would have been in, uh, involved in the uh, naval forces, but in terms of the ground forces, they were entirely American. Nearly three-quarters of a million, 134,000 vehicles, a million and a half tons of supplies, and over a thousand warships mm. would have dwarfed D-Day. Yes. Scheduled to begin on November 1st, 1945. It was expected that the defending force, in terms of the Japanese, would have been 350,000 men. Mm. Intelligence decrypts in early August showed that there were 900,000 
Japanese soldiers waiting for them on Kyushu. We'll go into more of that in just a moment. The second phase was Coronet, and it was to begin on March 1st of 1946. It would have been even bigger with over a million uh, American soldiers, uh, 190,000 vehicles, 3,328 planes, 2,640,000 tons of supplies. I mean, the scale, and so it's even bigger yet. Yeah. than obviously what uh, Olympic is. It's incredible, the number of size. And so you have these huge, potentially titanic forces lining up to fight each other. Frankly, very much in terms of scale, finally, because most of the Pacific battles have been, relatively speaking, small until you get to the Philippines and you get to Okinawa. They're on these little islands. Now you're talking about forces that would have been akin to the Germans and the Russians on the Eastern Front. Yes. Millions or hundreds of thousands of soldiers facing each other in this potentially titanic struggle. Yes. Okay. Okay. So, um, in terms of casualties, <clears throat> revisionists, or we'll call them their opinions, want to point sometimes to a figure of 31,000 uh, casualties which was given to uh, Truman during a meeting on June 18th when the same Joint Chiefs of Staff and other members of uh, Truman's closed cabinet, like the Secretary of War, Stimson, Secretary of State Burns, etc., participate in a meeting. Actually, Burns wasn't in that meeting. I take that back. Stimson was. Uh, Admiral Leahy was as well. Anyway, they meet on, on June 18th, and that uh, one of the reasons for calling the meeting, in fact, the primary reason for calling the meeting uh, in terms of Truman's perspective is he wants to know about casualties, because as far as he's concerned, the amount of time that it takes and the amount of, we'll say, American treasure apart from human lives mm. are, relatively speaking, unimportant. The most important thing to Truman are the number of lives. And by the way, Truman is was a uh, an officer during World War yeah, One and commanded yeah. tro uh, troops. He had an artillery uh, battery that he commanded during World War One was very familiar with it, and actually stayed in the reserves through all the way into Congress, mm -hmm. into the 30s, and actually even suggested to Marshall at one point in time, I think, and or FDR, that he actually become part of the armed forces during the war. Mm -hmm. They decided that as a senator that they wanted him to stay in the uh, Senate instead. Mm -hmm. In any event, so he's very familiar with, with this, and lives do really matter to Truman. He's also very concerned, frankly, about the POWs that are being horribly mistreated in the Pacific, that more and more information is coming out about. Nevertheless, so, he, uh, one, so one of the things, like I said, the primary the purpose of the meeting was to find out what sort of casualties we were looking at in the event of this invasion. A number that was offered up, and it was the only hard number that actually was offered up during the meeting, was 31,000 uh, by uh, Marshall. And all that was, was first of all, it was for the only the first 30 days of the Kyushu operation. Okay. And secondly, all it was, it was based on some estimates that um, MacArthur had provided him. And it was only really after uh, that, uh, when Marshall kind of recoiled at the first suggestions that MacArthur was making, that he came up with a lower number. But nevertheless, all it was, was a rough percentage and to some degree, uh, intentional or otherwise, to probably downplay the potential casualties. Yeah. So what did Truman know, either in advance or after? Well, as it turns out, actually, just before, really, right after the uh, meeting of the uh, 
Joint Chiefs of Staff, Truman met with former President Hubert Hoover, who had still been, uh, had made, uh, maintained, as a lot of former presidents do, contacts, including some guys in the Pentagon known as the Smart Colonels. Mm-hmm. They had given him an estimate of 500,000 to 1 million dead Americans in an invasion. Mm-hmm. Hoover, when he briefed uh, Truman on May 28th, said that there can be basically no American objective that is worth that many lives. Mm-hmm. And to put that into perspective for just a second, the United States sustained in total, this is from killed in action and died in action from other kinds, or died in, from other causes like disease, etc., which there was plenty of, certainly, or other uh, cold, etc. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. Uh, 400,000 was the total losses of the Americans during all of World War II in all theaters combined. So the number that Hoover was suggesting here would have been fully double Mm -hmm. that. Uh, Well, equal that, more than equal that, or double that. And by the way, that was killed in action. By that point in time, what we were seeing, at least in the Pacific, was that you would see four times that number in casualties. Yeah. The United States actually experienced about 1.1 million casualties, so that would have meant that we would have seen, in this particular case, by, based on Hoover's estimate, yeah. 2 million to 4 million casualties, and that, of it, which a half a million to a million would have been killed in action. And I suppose with our, our kind of um, cynical hats on when thinking about polit- uh, politicians and their, their calculations, um even beyond any sort of concern for the troops, uh, Truman must have known at that stage in the war that that was completely politically unsustainable. That there's no way that that those kinds of losses that, that American the American public. Oh no, um, absolutely not. No, the United it, States Americans yeah. would never have accepted those kinds of losses. No. Okay, so he knew that actually going into that meeting. Yeah. On June 18th, with the Joint Chiefs of Staff and some of the other members of the cabinet. And yet he got, the only estimate, firm estimate that he got from Marshall was that 31,000. Well, that's like, say, a number that revisionists like to stake their, their claim to in some cases, saying that, oh, if we had invaded, now keep this in mind, invaded with three quarters of a million men, defended by 900,000 Japanese, and that's not the total here, I'll get to more of it in just a moment when we get into their part of the invasion, Mm -hmm. the defensive side of things, you would have seen that kind of uh, forces uh, uh, confronting each other. You'd just seen in Okinawa where we invaded with 180,000 men that we sustained 80,000 casualties, or about actually one out of three. 
yeah. was a casualty. And uh, 13,000 of those were killed in action. Uh, on Iwo Jima, as I pointed out a moment ago, you had an invasion force of about 75,000. 26,000 were casualties, one out of three. 7,000 of them were killed in action, one out of 10. Mm. And yet you have people wanting us to believe that we were going to experience 30,000 casualties when we threw three quarters of a million men at 900,000 mm. defending their homeland. I mean, it, it, to me, it, it just boggles the mind. And so I, I really get irritated, to be perfectly honest with you, when you say, well, not you, when people say there are these differences of opinions. Mm. Yeah, opinions, mm-hmm. not facts. Sure. The facts are, sure. those are the numbers. I think the, There is no way you yeah. can reach those kinds of conclusions yeah. if you, when you look at what was actually taking place. So the kinds of numbers that Hoover was, was suggesting via the smart colonels yeah. is not unreasonable. And it wasn't a post-war fabrication, no. as some of these revisionists like to say, that Stimson and Trumer came up with these numbers after the war was over to justify using the atomic bomb. No. Not, not the case. They knew the numbers before. There's a secondary memo that comes out uh, by uh, Shock, a guy by the name of Shockley, who was a PhD from MIT, mm-hmm. who was hired as a consultant by the United States to do a number of different things. And he came up with similar numbers, 400,000 to 800,000 dead, so only slightly less yeah. than what Hoover had come up with, 1.4 million to 4 million total casualties. Yeah. His memo came out on July 21st. It's not clear whether Truman ever saw that, but it is pretty clear that Stimson likely saw that. Oh. And lastly, Marshall, who had come up with, uh, like say, the relatively modest number during that meeting, during Potsdam, Mm. on July 25th, told Truman that he expected at least 250,000 to 1 million casualties. Right. So what was motivating Marshall to pick the, the kind of the, the very, very, shall we say, modest, modest numbers? Number? Yeah. Well, I, I think personally that, uh, you know, that probably he did, you know, want to maybe play that down because he wanted Truman, who did, by the way, at the end of the meeting, okay just the first part of the invasion, meaning the uh, Operation Olympic, to invade southern Kyushu. He held back on the idea of okaying Coronet at that point in time because he wanted to see ultimately what would happen then. And by the way, clearly in this time frame, um, the bomb was something that was closing in on reality Mm. but had not yet been tested. Right. So it did not factor in in terms of this particular discussion, nor yeah. with the Joint Chiefs of Staff at the end of May, as far as, well, is, is this an option to yeah. avoid having to do an invasion? Yeah. Okay. Um, I have spoken to actually other military uh, guys who actually were in the military and are military historians, and they said, this is what, what Marshall did at that time was not really all that atypical. Typically, it was based on percentages, and that's where that number came from. Mm. But as I said, it was only for the 30, first 30 days. The operation was expected to take at least 90. Sure. So at an absolute minimum, it would have been uh, roughly 100,000 casualties mm. to take just the lower one-third of Kyushu, and that was only the first objective. Mm. But even under those circumstances, remember, that was based on 350,000 defenders. Intelligence tells us by August, and the United States had been breaking the Japanese code, both their political and uh, and military codes, for years at that point in time. We're reading it almost as fast as the Japanese were themselves. 
So we knew by August, uh, right about the time the bombs are about to be dropped, that 900,000, with two months left before the invasion was supposed to start, sure. that there was 900,000 Japanese defender, and that's not the limit of their defenses, as like I say, we'll get into in a moment. Sure. Um, okay. And, and, I mean, the other, the other figure you mentioned, um, uh, kind of very controversial uh, figure, really, that casts a long shadow over the war in the Pacific is, is MacArthur. And where does, and you mentioned him earlier, but where where does MacArthur stand in 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 all of this? And and because um, he he uh, eventually becomes the the kind of the the consul of uh, Japan, but was primarily engaged in the Philippines. What were his uh, intentions to as far as a, a land invasion? Okay. Well, he wasn't involved with the actual invasion plans that we were that I was just talking about yeah. a little while ago. That was being handled by the Joint Chiefs or the decision itself to go ahead with it. The Japanese, I mean, sorry, the Americans had decided that they were going to split the invasion in terms of command structure. Nimitz, Admiral Nimitz, would have commanded all forces as they were getting to shore. Mm -hmm. Once they got ashore, uh, MacArthur would have taken complete control over the forces uh, once they got ashore. Yeah. In terms of where he stood on this, he was completely in favor of the invasion and mm -hmm. felt like it was the best way to gain Japan's capitulation. And to at least a, a lot of historians would probably say that he was enamored with the idea of leading the greatest invasions in history, because yeah. they would have been. They would have been, like I said, much bigger than the D-Day invasions. Mm -hmm. At least we'll call them amphibious invasions, shall we say. Because yeah. obviously you had land invasions that were greater than this, but this would have been the greatest land invasions in history. Mm -hmm. So he was in favor of it. In fact, he, he remained in favor of it even in spite of the intelligence in August of the information that said there are now 900,000 Japanese there, basically downplaying it. Yeah. Uh, substantially that it, we thought it was false information, yet we had obviously been relying on exactly this kind of information, in other words, our ability to break their codes, mm -hmm. right, uh, for years at that point in time. And MacArthur had used them, obviously, before then, but now, uh, when confronted with the idea that, well, maybe we're not going to go ahead with the invasion, maybe it'd be smarter to stay with blockade and bombardment, mm -hmm. which, by the way, at this point in time, by August, we know that we have an atomic bomb, could have included atomic bombs. I guess the, the final question I have um, on a slightly different tack is the, the, you know, the, the often cited argument that uh, Truman was uh, displaying uh, American power to uh, the Soviet Union uh, and the atomic bomb uh, was a, a kind of like a, a message to Stalin. What do you make of that? Uh, I, I don't believe that. Uh, in fact, uh, let's go to slightly before Truman, and then we'll reiterate it with Truman. Uh, it was just a few months before this when FDR was still alive, mm -hmm. and they went to Yalta, and one of the first or primary things on the agenda of the United States was to get the Soviet, unions to, uh, Soviet Union to agree to attack the Japanese yeah. in Manchuria, yeah. right? Uh, 90 days approximately after the end of the war in Europe. Mm -hmm. As it turns out, it was right on the money, spot on, because the war ended, as far as the Soviets were concerned, on May 9th. They celebrate the end of the war one day later than the rest of us do. Yeah. Uh, and they, in fact, do invade Manchuria on August 9th. Yeah. Uh, what does Truman do when he goes to Potsdam? One of the first things he does is meet with Stalin 
and in fact gain Stalin's uh, again uh, uh, belief. Uh, well, I don't want to say commitment. That's the word I'm looking for to invade. Mm-hmm. And and by the way, from the military, meaning American military standpoint, they want this as well. Why? Because it ties down Japanese troops in mainland Asia yeah. that aren't allowed then to go across the water, even though we've got a very effective blockade. Just to put that in perspective, the Japanese in March of 1945 managed to move six divisions from, from the Kwantung Army in Manchuria yeah. across the water and in, well, part of it across the water, I'm sorry, three divisions into mainland Japan, mm-hmm. three divisions down into Korea. And when you're talking about 900,000 troops on Kyushu, these figures really matter. I mean, Im- Im- Absolutely. immensely, immensely. Immensely. So, yes. so um, the, the involvement of, because, uh, you know, one of the readings in the past that I've seen is that the um, that Roosevelt um, says this to Stalin at Yalta, and uh, true, he sort of creates a rod for Truman to carry in, in a way that because you have an, an advance of um, uh, the the so- Soviet power into Asia um, a, a, as a result. But from the perspective of looking at the numbers here, um, it's it's vital that you get Soviet power. Um, to uh, the, the Soviets to attack the Japanese in Manchuria, um, just as vital as it was to for the the Soviets to throw their everything they had against um, the Germans, uh, um, just just prior to D Day. Um, right. So so but, yes. So so let me add just a little bit more to that yeah. because part of of the uh, sort of the intimidation of the Soviets. So. I would use that as the argument that, no, that wasn't the case. And, and by the way, and I don't want to preempt what we're going to talk about too much the next time, but ultimately we, we the United States, uh, gives a counteroffer to the Japanese original offer to surrender. And as we'll see when we get into that, what that risked, because it was the militarists didn't want to go along with the offer in the first place to surrender, yeah. What it risked was delaying the war even longer and breaking down the entire peace initiative that had just begun. Yeah. And in the event that that happened, given that you do have the Soviets entering the war on August 9th, it meant that their position politically improved mm-hmm. as far as what the post-war surrender would look like, yeah. perhaps increasing their influence much like it was in Europe. Yeah. And so if we didn't want their influence, their involvement, at least in terms of tying it from a military perspective, tying down those troops, then we were risking that. Yes. And that was Burns who did that, who was often viewed as the guy who was the manipulator of Truman, yeah. an inexperienced president, so they say, right, into using atomic diplomacy. Mm-hmm. The other thing that they like to tie to this, and again, we'll go into this in more detail the next time, is that... Part of the issue was they wanted to beat the Russians to Japan, mm-hmm. that the Russians were ready to invade Japan itself mm. through Hokkaido, the northernmost island. Mm. That is a complete fallacy. The Red Army was an incredible land army. Yeah. But there was water yeah. between Russia and Japan, including Hokkaido. Yes. And their ability to lift significant numbers of troops across water was close to zero. Yes. It's referred to in one book called Hell to Pay by DMG and Greco as the Hokkaido 
myth. Yes. Because that's exactly what it was. And of course, that Stalin had spied so successfully on the Western powers that um, if there were figures within Washington who knew of 900,000 troops here and a million troops there, Stalin would probably have been well aware of the 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 the, the, the troop buildups, the Japanese troop um, concentrations in uh, the Japanese islands, and may have been rather circumspect about taking those on. Well, in, in terms of uh, invading Hokkaido, they did actually look at it in the latter part of July, and the only real amphibious capability that they had actually had been provided by the United States yeah. in terms of shipping. Uh, there was actually, we'll say, a pinprick on their part by uh, against Japan, and they got their nose bloody pretty well. Uh, but uh, in terms of being able to do that, uh, Stalin, as an example, consulted with his military, including Zhukov. Zhukov basically said that if we we would need sufficient forces, forget the the amphibious capability because they didn't have it and we weren't going to provide it, right? We were using all of our amphibious capability. But he said that to do uh, to invade Hokkaido, we would have needed sufficient forces that would have put in jeopardy the invasion of Manchuria. Yeah. So, so uh, it's best to allow the Soviets to stick to what they know, you know, <laughs> stick to what they're good at. Great, great. Well, I think that's a, a so, good. Pl- Sorry, David. Do we have one more time? I, I did want to cover very quickly. Yeah, sure. So, in addition, in addition to, uh, so Ketsu Go was the name of the Japanese plans yes. for the defense of the home islands. And by, uh, in terms of difference to other military plans, this one involves the use of civilians on a much grander scale, and as well as uh, suicide uh, attacks on a much grander scale than anything we'd seen before. Yeah. They were going to enlicit, enlicit the use of civilians to the tune of uh, women from 17 to 40, men from 15 to 60, in total in Japan out of a population of, I think, on the Japanese home islands of around 72 million, I believe, 28 million mm-hmm. Japanese civilians were subject to this. On the lower part of Kyushu, where the battle would initially take place, there were 4 million civilians who would have been swept up in the combat and potentially subjected to horrific casualties. In terms of uh, kamikazes, in addition to 10,000 aircraft for kamikaze purposes, to put that in perspective, there were roughly 2,000 sorties flown against Okinawa over 82 days. Mm -hmm. 10,000 were available, and 5,000 were going to be used in just the opening hours of the invasion. And instead of going after our big capital ships, including aircraft carriers, they were going to go exclusively after troop ships. Right. To cause as many casualties as possible, because the Japanese believed that with enough casualties, they could win something better than unconditional surrender. Basically, American political will would crumble, and then you could bring America to the negotiating table. That's correct. Yeah. That's correct. Absolutely. In addition to the 10,000 planes, they also had around 1,200 Mm mini-subs. They were going to use crashing into boats or or torpedoing uh, aircraft, uh, I mean, uh, uh, landing craft. A thousand what they would refer to as uh, motorboats that they were going to be using as well. 
And then they even had little divers that they were going to put in the shallows near the uh, shoreline or whatever that were going to come up underneath the landing craft with TNT charges and explode underneath the boats. And then on land, uh, a tactic, the tactic that they had used on Okinawa, I don't remember whether they did this on Iwo Jima as well, was basically take, again, a TNT charge and roll under tanks mm-hmm. and explode themselves. Because one of the most vulnerable places on a tank is the under part of the tank because it's probably one of the thinnest areas of, of steel because you don't expect to take a hit on the end on the bottom of the tank, right? No. So that's what was confronting and what would have been the casualties. Mm-hmm. Now we talked about the casualties relative to the American side of things. In terms of what the Japanese casualties were forecasted to be, shockingly the same guy that had forecasted the four hundred to eight hundred thousand American dead forecasted 5 to 10 million Japanese dead mm-hmm. in an invasion. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is, by the way, this is both parts of the invasion, mm-hmm. uh, net and Olympic. And the Japanese themselves forecasted out of a population of 72 million, 20 million dead. And these were acceptable numbers. Mm-hmm. They were part of the plan. It, it, it was as if they were taking the entire population of the country and smashing it, willing to smash it against a boulder and mm. see if they could crack it. And I suppose the only the only difference between the the last days of the Third Reich uh, and the, um, the, the 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 planned um, defense of, of Japan is that um, the the Nazi leadership knew that the war was uh, was lost and they knew that there was no discussion of negotiation and their their sort of got damerung um, sort of um, uh, ideology if you will was that we will just take the country down with us uh, there there will be no uh, you know without nazism there is no germany so there's no need for for germany to continue existing we'll take everybody with us uh, in the end whereas the 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 japanese was were uh, i suppose it's part of kind of this sort of uh, feudalism that had lingered on in Japan. If you um, sacrifice enough of the the expendables, then at least the emperor and the feudal system in Japan might survive somehow. But um, uh, you know, we that that's all in, in the kind of the realms of the hypothetical. I, I, I guess it is, but it is it is interesting in terms of that parallel that you just yeah. draw, drew, though that in both cases. Total disregard for human life by the leadership in both of those countries. Yeah. Didn't really care how many people, Germans or Japanese, died. No. As long as we could preserve, in the case of the Japanese, the emperor and the existing, we'll come into that in a lot more detail again, a lot, the existing form of government. Yeah, yeah. So that's what is going to be the topic of our next discussion. And um, when we, we, we next meet um, shortly, we'll be talking about the decision-making of um, Hirohito, of his government, and of the, the kind of the militarists that surround Hirohito, and also, interestingly, some of the, the more junior officers uh, uh, as well. Um, so, David, it's been an absolute treasure to be able to talk to you and to listen to your many, many years of, of research. It's been an immense privilege, um, and we look forward to catching you on the next Explaining History podcast. Thanks, Nick. I really appreciate the opportunity. You're very, very welcome. Very, very welcome.